guys can grab a seat. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to Hebrews chapter 12. We're digging our way through that. If you don't have a Bible, just slip your hands up. The usher should be coming shortly with one. You're welcome to look on your electronic device as well. Uh, I, my, one of my daughters was playing soccer for a couple seasons, my, and she was seven at this time, and I was the assistant coach. I got out of coaching the first year, and then the actual coach realized that I actually had played soccer, and he'd never played soccer in his life. He's like, you have to help me. So I said, okay, I'll help him. So I was assistant coach with him, and we were at this practice, and we kind of got everything set up, and we got the goals down and the, the cones, and everything's right, a bunch of seven-year-old girls, and I'm like, all right, we're going we're gonna to practice, you know, whatever that looks like for seven-year-old girls. And one of the girls on the team decides that she's done playing. And I don't know if you've ever seen a seven-year-old girl figure out they're done playing, but when you don't know them too well, it's, it's, it's a fun thing to watch, right? So she decides, she's like, she stands herself like right in front of the goal, right where we're trying to do some practice, and she stands there, and she won't kick a ball, she won't move, and she, no one can touch her soccer ball. And she's like, and I'm like, hey, little one, I said her name, right? But I said, hey, little one, would you, would you be willing to like, do you want to practice with it? She's like, no. I was like, oh, okay, um, would you, since you don't want to do this with us, would you be willing to step, you know, maybe three feet to the left or right. I don't, I don't really care. Just, just, just move. No. So like, well, we can't, the rest of us can't practice if you're here. And I'm doing this conversation and her parents are about 20 yards over there. And so I'm kind of one of those like moments where I'm like, help, you know, like what's going on? Like, what do I do here? This isn't my child. I don't know her heart. I don't know who she is. Now, even when I bring this up, right, she, by the, by the way, we had, we had to move the goal around her. Okay. We had to move the goal. Like that's literally, she just was like a stump in the ground. Like there was no bring it down. And I wasn't about to break out an ax. It's not my kid. Okay. No, I'm just kidding. Um, and so she would move. Now, even when I say that, every single one of you, whether you are parents or not parents, have an idea of how you would have fixed that problem. Every single one of you. Some of you are like, oh, man, that kid would have, you know, and others are like, well, no, what we could have done, and there's this, this is, you know, recoach, or you did the right thing, and every single person plus every single thing in the middle of that would happen. We have this idea of how we would have fixed that problem. We would have, we would have had our own version of what we think discipline looks like. The reason why I tell you this story is that understanding of how we'd fix that has drastically affected the way we view God and Scripture today. It has an immense application, weight, and how you and I view God and understand life, especially when we're about to talk about God and discipline. This scenario, what you would have seen as biblical or right or parental discipline and the varying view you have from me or someone else, the opposite spectrum, which book you read or which book here, all different parenting styles and what you learned in education system or what you learned through, through grandpa or grandma or what you've learned over time. Like we all have this view of what discipline looks like. And the problem is that we then, no matter how hard we try, we, we don't look at the Lord through the lens of scripture. We look at the Lord through our lens and understanding what discipline's supposed to be. Oh, you should have been harder on that kid. Nope, you should have been softer. Oh, you should have coached him more. Nope, you should have, you should have done more physical there. You should have, like, we have this whole lens of what it means. And this is very important for us to identify right now because what I'm about to talk to is not a popular subject. What I'm about to talk through is something that most of us are going to kind of, oh, it doesn't, it doesn't sit always all that well with us because we struggle with the idea of God being good and disciplining. And it's, it's, it's amazing that the author does this. It's amazing what he does here because, because it's, it's almost like he, he sees the pressure and the push that these Jewish people that he's speaking to has. He sees this pressure where he's, he's, he's looking at them, he's saying, look, faith, faith, faith. After he talked about persevering to the end in chapter 10, then faith, 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 faith. And then he says, keep your eyes fixed on Jesus Christ. Stay focused on him. He's, the, he's not only the founder, the beginner, the author of your faith, but he's the perfecter, the completer of your faith. 
He, he does it both. And then he pauses here. He stops and says, okay, hang on. I think you've forgotten something. And so let's look at this real quick. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 3. Just after he told us to lay down every weight and sin like we talked about last week, he goes into what I think is one of the hardest scriptures for all of us to palate in, in, in Hebrews. Consider him who endured from sinners. So consider Jesus Christ who endured, endured from sinners. Okay? From sinners, such hostility against himself so that you may what? Not grow weary or faint-hearted. Look, here's the heart. Here's the heart. He's, he's, he, says, he says it here and then he says it again. We're going to start to talk about it next week. Don't go weary or faint-hearted. Now, there's two things we can learn from that. One is there's a potential of us growing weary and faint-hearted. This wouldn't be here if it was not a potential thing to happen to us. This wouldn't be here. It wouldn't say, don't grow weary or faint-hearted. It would be like, that never happens. He's saying, no, this, this is important. Don't grow weary or faint-hearted. Consider, focus in, pay attention to Jesus Christ. It's, it's, a, it's a, another way to say, fix your eyes on the author, the founder and perfecter of your faith. Fix your eyes, consider him who endured suffering through sinners' hands, right? Goes on, says, don't go weary or faint-hearted. In your struggles against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. Okay, so he's doing a, he's doing a fun little comparison game here. He's basically taking all of the, the, the Jewish people he's talking to right now in the book of Hebrews, and he's comparing them to what Jesus had to go through. Which again, shouldn't surprise us because the entirety of the book of Hebrews has been about how Jesus is better or greater than everything else. And he's saying, look, your struggles, your battles, your persecution, as they are starting to feel some persecution, we see in chapter 10 that some are starting to get imprisoned for their faith in Jesus. So they're, they're experiencing some persecution. We know by history, a couple years later, this is like, it's, it's rampant and it's every kind of persecution that comes on these people. But he's saying, you guys, you guys have not yet experienced persecution to the level that Jesus did. You haven't had to shed your blood. You haven't had to give your life for his name. Your persecution, your battle, your struggles are not as great as his. So he's just, he's just keeping that in our minds. So like, hey, don't forget. Just keep that up here. Don't lose sight of this. He's, he's the one that is, is experienced the hardship. He's the one that's gone further. This is just a reminder of Hebrews chapter 2. Let me look at this with me real quick. Hebrews chapter 2, 10 says, For it was fitting that he, God, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder, Jesus, of their salvation, perfect, complete, through suffering. So he says that, look, Jesus wasn't imperfect. Jesus was already perfect, but he completes the work through suffering. So the, the very work that Jesus did and went through on the cross and the resurrection was what completes this thing. And he's saying, hey, this is how you and I become sons and daughters. You and I become sons and daughters through the suffering of Jesus Christ. And then he relates it back and says, but you haven't, haven't, you haven't even had to shed any blood for your persecution yet. He says, you want to be a son or daughter of Jesus, it, it comes through the blood of Jesus Christ. You want to be a son of, or daughter of, of, of the Most High King, you want to have a right in the throne room of God, it comes through the anchor, Jesus Christ, who anchors you to the throne room of God through his righteousness. This is how you get to God. This is how you secure your salvation. This is how it happens. It's all a work of Jesus Christ to the faith that is given to you by the work of Jesus Christ on the cross, in the resurrection, and it is that way that we receive this. That's how you get there. And then he says, and he 
completed that work through suffering. So why would we be any different? And this is, this is, honestly, I think this is the biggest battle that we as American Christians will always wrestle with, our complacency and comfort with what does it mean to really suffer. Our wrestling to find more peace and comfort in our own lives and everything that we can in the world as opposed to looking to the author of peace in Jesus Christ and submitting ourselves to him entirely. And this is the battle we'll have. And so he goes on. He says, don't forget, just in case you forgot a sentence ago, consider Jesus. Pay attention to Jesus, okay? And then he goes on. He goes on and says, and have you forgotten the exhortation? So first it's like, don't forget, consider. And he says, and have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? Now, this is a rhetorical question in Scripture. This is, I love them when there's a rhetorical question in Scripture because he, he knows that basically the reason why the Jews today that were being persecuted were starting to squirm or running away from Jesus or kind of maybe trying to go back to the, the high priest in, in the temple and the system that was in place there, the reason they were was because they actually forgot this very thing. And Jesus, have, have you forgotten this? Have you forgotten what was written? And he quotes Proverbs 3, 11, and 12. He says, my son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary, there's our word, weary, when reproved by him. Don't grow weary or faint-hearted, nor be weary. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. Doesn't that sound fun? He goes on and says, it is for discipline that you have to endure. It is for discipline that you this is you, child of God. You, anyone that's submitted to Jesus Christ. It is for discipline that you and I have to endure. God is treating you as sons or daughters. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons at all. It's a big statement. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? So he goes, he goes into, it makes a basic assumption that I want to kind of clear up for us in Scripture. In the Old Testament times, and basically in Jesus' day, everyone understood that discipline in the household came through the Father. The Father was the one that ultimately did the discipline, and it was never a question of whether or not discipline was happening. Uh, this is important because today, you and I, we've all seen the absolutely horrific, disgusting abuse that some people call dis discipline in this world. And the, 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 the downplay, the, the horrible effects in a child's heart where they grow up and the only thing they know is the person with the strongest fist is the most powerful. We've seen that horrific things today. And then we've also seen the other spectrum of kids that, that literally grow up without any understanding of the word no. There are no boundaries for them, whether because of lack of parents or because of just they don't care as parents. And so these kids get absolutely everything they want. And we've seen the disservice of both. We've seen God redeem both. We've seen the disservice of both. Now, here's the thing, and this is why I started with that story about the soccer. All of us in our own parenting style, whether we are parents or not, every single one of us believes that how we are parenting is not on either extreme. But yet there are people in the room that would look at you and go, you're over here and I'm over here. This is why this is a convoluted issue. This is why this is so difficult. It's because we all have this idea. He's, he's speaking into a Jewish culture where everyone understood discipline happened. In fact, so much so that you, you saw children 
respect their parents because of the discipline. It wasn't just a heavy hand. It wasn't just to beat them down until they submit to my ways. It was a submission that was given by God, that was commanded of God to his children, and this is where it is. And we see this over and over and over again. And so discipline to us with God is something that we should all be aware that is going to happen. In fact, this isn't the only scripture. Let me just hit a few scriptures that talk about God disciplining. Job 5, 17. If you've ever read Job, you can see a lot of that there. Blessed is the one whom God reproves. Blessed is the one who God reproves. Therefore, despise not. Don't despise the discipline of the Almighty. Psalm 119, 75. I know, O Lord, that your rules are righteous. You are righteous. Everything you say is righteous. And that in faithfulness, in faithfulness, you have afflicted me. God, your rules are righteousness. Your rules are righteous. In faithfulness, you're afflicting me. Revelations 3, 8, 3, 19. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline, so be zealous and repent. Over and over and over again, we see that um, relating discipline to the fact that we are his children, we see that in Deuteronomy 8, 2 Samuel 7, Proverbs 13, 19, and 23, we see that there's a correlation, a connection that happens between us being the children of God and being disciplined. It would have been wrong for me to apply my discipline to this child that I barely know. But we see God saying, as his children, he will discipline us. Verses five through seven are giving them a reason. He says, he says, the reason is that you're growing weary and losing heart. The reason why you are growing weary, why you're losing heart, is because you've forgotten. You've forgotten the very thing that can help you know for certain that you're a child of God, and that is through discipline. You've forgotten it. He says, he says, for those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines. He scourges every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you endure. In other words, what adversaries do to you out of sinful hostility, what we saw in Jesus' case, God is doing out of fatherly discipline. God deals with you as with sons in your pain and not being treated as a slave or an enemy. You're being treated as a chi loved child of God. The issue is, is, will you believe this? Will you believe that your hardships, your sufferings is an example, is a proof, is a, is a laid out in front of you saying, you, Bren, the hardships you're going through, it's because I love you. It's because you're my child and I love you. And he goes to this relating of, of, of how dads and, and parents treat. And he says, look, he says, he does a, a brilliant word switch in verse nine. He says, Besides this, we have earthly fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them. He's saying it's a positive thing. There wasn't someone in the audience that was like, oh, no, we don't see that. That was a common cultural thing. Yes, fathers disciplined, children respected. It wasn't, a, it wasn't an abusive thing. It was just the way it was. I'm sure there was abuse happening. It's a broken world. But that was the general principle and understanding was that this was just respected. And he, said, and he goes on. He goes, shall we not much more? And instead of saying respect the Lord, he says, be subject. Shall we not much more be subject? He goes, he goes into a four, another four-letter word for Christians today. Shall we not more be submitted to the Father of spirits and live? He pulls out submit. He says, he says look, you want should to, we, should we not submit to the Lord who brings, he's the spiritual father and he brings life. His discipline brings life. None of our earthly fathers can promise life. They can sustain it, but none of them can actually Bring about life like the Father does. And so he says, shall we not submit ourselves to the Lord's discipline? 
Shall we not give ourselves over to this? Look, submission is not easy. It's not, it's not something that's like, oh, it's so easy to submit. It's just so easy. It is a difficult thing. It is hard. If submission was easy, I don't think it'd be in here. We'd have to say submit to it. We'd be like, oh, yeah, that's just what we do. You just say, go about your day. You see the Lord showing us that through hardship, he brings about things. Through hardship. He makes the case that, he also makes the case, and I, I just want to say this, I don't want this to be a parenting thing, but he does make the case that, that really the understanding would be that an earthly, earthly parent should discipline their children. So if because of what you've seen as a misuse of discipline in your, maybe your home growing up or what you see in the culture around you, you've just decided that you weren't going to put any boundaries in place for your children, you're treating them, in the scriptures here, you're treating them as an illegitimate child. That's what, that's what this says. It says that God is, is disciplining you so that you can be his children. You want to know if you are his children, you'll see it through discipline. You'll experience it through discipline. If you, you void discipline altogether, you just let, let, like, yeah, just let it happen, see what happens, you're, you're treating them as an illegitimate child. A father then disciplines his child because he loves him or her and wants them to experience a life that has God's approval. We see um, talk, if you want to read a little bit more about what it means for a parent to discipline, Proverbs 13, 19, 22, 23, and 29 all talk about it. But he talks about the idea of us submitting to the Father. Now, this isn't any easier. Okay, so, so God is, the hardship we're experiencing is through the hands of, of sinners like Jesus. And, and God is, is sovereign over this. He's, he's taking care of this and he's making us, why is he allowing this hardship? Why can't he just, so many of us, our prayers are like, God, if you would just do this, I'll follow you. Just take away this difficulty. And he's saying, no, no, you don't understand. It's through the difficulty that I'm making you more like me. You know, most of our view of God is we view God as, a, as an ER doctor, right? Like, catastrophe happened, quick, send him into the ER doctor. When this scripture is telling us that God is literally the surgeon going, I'm going to cut you while you're perfectly fine in your own mind because I'm after your heart. I'm not going to wait until catastrophe happens. I'm going to come in and I'm going I'm I'm to push into you and I'm going to discipline you. Now, one of the, one of the things that we have to think about, and this is, this is hard, especially since he relates this to parenting. And again, like I started saying, we all wrestle with the idea of, of what discipline is or isn't. Most of us view discipline as a cause and effect kind of thing. I did this, I get that. That's how we view it. God is fully aware of everything we did. But he's not looking at that. He's looking at our hearts. And so you may have a laundry list of all the amazing things you're doing for the Lord right now, and yet you somehow don't look perfectly like Jesus or complete like Jesus, you know what's going to happen? Discipline. But I didn't do anything. Your heart isn't fully his. You don't look fully like him. He's already told us he's going to finish what he started. You're going to be on the surgery table, whether you like it or not. Whether you walk in there or not, he's going to say it's time to cut you. There are things on you, in your heart, that are not connected to me, and therefore I am going to work vigorously at disciplining you. Why? Because I love the snot out of you. Because I will never not keep my promises. Because the very promise that I said I will complete, I'm doing that very thing. I'm completing this work. That is what God is after. 
So he doesn't look at the cause and effect necessarily like we do. He sees the whole heart. And so a lot of us, when we judge God, when we look at God, we see bad things happen in good circumstances or just seemingly good people. We have to recognize that we don't know the hearts of anyone. And God's desire isn't a half heart, a quarter heart, or most of a heart. His desire and will is his entire heart. He wants everything. He wants the entirety of all of you. And so you have to come to terms with the idea of whether you understand what discipline looks like on this earth or how many mistakes you've made or not, and recognize that God is going to discipline you. This isn't a, this isn't a if. This is it's going to happen. Some of you right now, you're in and experiencing difficult hardships, and it's discipline. It's not, maybe it's not something that you overtly did in some sinful way. It's just a heart condition that is not enough like him yet. He wants more of your heart. He goes on and gives us the why, which I I love because it seems like this is a pretty brutal section of scripture. He goes on and says, for they, in verse 10, for they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them. So he's saying, look, your heavenly fathers, they did For just a little bit of time, they did what they thought was best to them. Now, I will tell you, there have been a number of times in my own children that I have thought I was doing the best with discipline that was absolutely sinful. I have had to go back and repent to my children, to my wife. I've had accountability for that. But at the time, I thought it was really what was best for them. But here's the difficulty. I'm not God. I don't know their hearts. I can can train. I can point. I can see. I can try and pay attention. I can listen. But I don't know their hearts. Here's the thing, parents, as much as you love your kids, as much as you think you know your kids, God knows them so much better than you. And he knows exactly what they need. You know, a big part of dedicating kids is saying, Lord, they're yours. Even if what you call them, what you lead them to in their life, I don't approve of. They're yours. He knows them so much better. And so he says, look, even your heavenly fathers, they did a pretty darn good job. But they did it the best way. But he, speaking of God, he disciplines us for what? For our good. You want to know why you're going through hardships? It's for your good. That sentence in a lot of our minds does not connect. The reason why we wrestle with our faith is because we don't see discipline as our good. We don't see suffering as good for us. We see it actually as something that's, that's like a reason to question God. Which just, let me just throw this out there. Nowhere in Scripture are we ever allowed to judge God. You can ask questions all day long, that's fine. But we are not allowed to judge Him. We're not allowed to say, God, what you did was wrong, what you did was was good, or what you did was bad. He's the judge. He's the one that judges us. We don't get to sit in that position. If you are judging what God is doing as to whether or not it's good or bad, you are sitting in a spot of pride. And guess what? God opposes the proud. Think about discipline. Says he gives grace to the humble. He says, Look, you're being disciplined for your good. The hardships you're going through, the hardships you went through this last year, your darkest hour, the most difficult thing, could it be that the Lord is saying, No, 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 when you come out the other side, you're going to look more like Jesus, which is what I'm about? It's for your good. I, I think, instead of saying could as a question, I will say it as a statement. I think the scripture tells us that every hardship you're going to go through, you're going to come out looking more like Jesus, and it's going to be for your good. 
And the reason why most of us struggle to believe that is because we still believe the lie that following the Lord is super easy and that everything works out great for us. And all we have to do is just have enough faith to make things happen. Yet even though he looks at the entire pillar of faith, every single one of those people made immense mistakes, had incredible difficulties in their life, and we still believe that somehow we're different. He says, no, you, you guys, it's, it's because I'm good. And it's for your good. The difficulty you're having right now is because I want you to be more like me. And it's for your good. And he goes on, just in case that wasn't enough reasons. You don't trust him with that. He goes on a little bit further and says, here's some other reasons why he does it. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. Now, let's just pause for a second. How many of you have been like, yeah, I'm getting disciplined? He's acknowledging that. Be human here. Recognize. It's not like you're going to wake up and be like, I'm so glad the Lord's disciplining me today. It's not pleasant. It's painful. It's painful. When, when iron sharpens iron, which is another thing Scripture says, it's a grinding. It's usually a painful process. If you're not connected to the vine, God, then the vine dresser is going to cut it away. It's painful. Don't assume that life has pain and God must not be there. What this is saying is God's the one actually with the scalpel. He's the one there because he's doing something in us that is for our own good that we can't see right now. But he's trustworthy. He says, for the moment, all discipline. He doesn't say some. No kid likes discipline. I don't like discipline. No one does, right? The instant you know, you know. In fact, you know how I know everyone doesn't like discipline? Do something wrong at work and then have to go talk to your boss afterwards. How do you walk in and be like, hey, I totally messed up. That was great. If you did, you probably don't have a job anymore, right? But most of you are like, oh, no, I messed up. I'm going to get in trouble. You, you, you kind of, you succumb to that inner child of like, oh, I disappointed dad. I'm going to be sad. Like, no one likes discipline. Yet we see in the New Testament, it says, consider it all joy when you experience trials. The author James. But discipline is not meant to be pleasant. It's not, it's not free of pain. And this is where the, like, the crux, this is the, 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 the fork in the road for us in our faith crisis. We experience pain and difficulty, and we assume because it's pain and it's suffering and it's hard that God is not in it. And so we're like, where are you, God? We throw our hands up and say, you know what? He obviously doesn't care. He obviously doesn't love me. When he's saying, the very reason I love you is the very reason you're in this right now. The very reason you're going through this is because I'm doing something in you that you can't understand right now, but I promise you on the other end of it, you're going to look back and say, I look more like Jesus Christ in my life in this way, which is the goal, which is the purpose. He goes on and gives us one more reason in case we need more reasons. He says, but later, as painful and unpleasant as it is, it later it, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. So you're, you're being trained by discipline. And what does it give you? Peace and righteousness. Isn't it interesting that most of us run from suffering or hardship looking for peace, yet the Lord is saying that you want to experience peaceful righteousness, it goes through dis- discipline? I was talking with Danny Pellegrini this week about this scripture, and he asked two questions. I think he was meant, meant for me to ask you guys, but it totally like just wrestled with me this week. He said, if you know that the Lord is going to use hardship to make you more like Jesus... This is the question he asked, and I just, it just stuck with me all week long. He said, what would you pray for? He said, would you pray for the hardships, or would you pray for the easy way? 
If you know that the Lord is going to, to, to work in you through hardships, are you going to always pray for an escape from the hardship? Or are you going to say, Lord, take me through? Now, I don't think there's anything wrong. Lord, please help us work through this. There's nothing wrong with asking. In fact, Jesus commands of us and says, he commands of us not only to do it, but he does it because he says, look at how great of a father we have. He identifies us to his as his children again. So the very discipline you're having, he may not take you out of. But some of you would maybe run a little less fast away from the discipline if you knew that the Lord was making you this. I don't know. I wrote in my notes this way. Members of community may have wondered why God's people suffer insult, rejection, persecution at all. These experiences are enough to make people doubt God's love and lose heart. The author anticipates such questions with his firm but gentle rebuke, telling them that they have completely forgotten the exhortation in Scripture that speaks to them as God's children about discipline and suffering. We've forgotten this as well. He literally lines up divine sonship with discipline. You want to be a child of God? You're going to experience discipline. It's not if. It's not maybe. It's they go hand in hand. Just in case you're wondering if suffering has any other purposes in Scripture, Luke 13, 1 through 5, suffering will cause repentance. Um, 2 Corinthians 1, 8 through 9, it will cause reliance. 2 Corinthians 4, 16 through 18, it gives us, it shows that through suffering we will be rewarded. We see that we gain revelation from Romans 8 through suffering. So suffering plays a massive role into following the Lord. So this is my plea with you as it seems the author's plea is persevere, don't run. Don't run from difficulty. Don't believe the lie that you need to make everything as comfortable as possible here while you can. Instead, let yourself be cut away at. Let yourself be made complete. Let yourself experience those hardships and not, look, you may not go through like fake smiling. That's not what he's asking. It's painful. But on the other end is a peaceful righteousness that you can't can't get any way on your own except through these trials, except through these hardships. Going back to the way, the, the forerunner for us, the one that we're supposed to fix our eyes on, Jesus completed it through his suffering. We are his through him. So we should be, why would we assume we're greater than Jesus and we don't have to go through it? I would assume it doesn't take us to die to ourselves. Discipline is a difficult, difficult thing. One author said it this way. When he said, this shows the divine Discipline and sonship go hand in hand. The Lord is the one who disciplines his people both individually and corporately in order to bring them into a closer relationship with himself. His discipline involves training, instruction, and firm guidance as well as reproof, correction, and punishment. This activity arises out of the parent-child relationship and since he is a loving father who desires the best for his people, his discipline is evidence of his love for and commitment to us. Adversity, suffering, and hardships are the means that he uses to bring his people to faithful and obedient sonship. See, we, we contrast. We think that we, like I think I love my kids when I discipline them, but I, I, I'm, a, I'm a messed up person. We don't have to worry about that. When we're being disciplined by the Lord, it's because he is perfect, he is good, and it's for our benefit, and he's bringing us about to share in his holiness. It says in the scripture, he's bringing us about to share in his holiness, to bring us a peaceful righteousness. Discipline is so good. 
Despite what you view, the mis- misuse of it in our culture, whatever kind of skewed lens of view we have of what discipline is, discipline is good. And that's what the scripture tells us. He says, don't grow weary. Don't lose heart. Don't get faint-hearted. Don't, don't worry no matter how difficult it gets. No matter how difficult, even if you have to shed your blood, don't worry because the Lord is at work. He is sovereign. He is good. And he will finish what he started. Do you trust him? This is why I think this is such a profound step in faith. We see all the things that people did by faith, by faith, by faith, by faith. And he says, hey, here's probably the biggest affront to faith. is when it gets difficult, what are you going to do? When you start seeing hardships, what are you going to do? The band's going to come up and we're going we're to worship again. But I'll just leave you with this. My, my assumption is on, on a scripture like this, it can, it can be received sometimes difficultly. And this may bring about a lot of questions in you. You might be wrestling with some things. I would, I would encourage you to wrestle. I would encourage you to look at the scriptures and not just assume that you came into this with this preconceived idea that, that everything that you know is right, but literally wrestle with this. And if you need someone to walk through, the elders are more than willing to walk through this with you. But I, but I want to just, just ask you this question one more time. If, if the Lord's going to use hardship in your life to make, him more, make you more like Jesus, is that what's most important to you? See, I think we can, we can really, I don't mean this to be too harsh, but I think we can really answer this question for us, what's most important in our lives? If our comfort and our peace and our joy and our, and our um, complacency or just our own feelings are what's most important to us, then it's easy to say that, that, that Jesus isn't. Because our comfort, our peace, our joy, all those things are going to be rocked by Jesus through discipline. Don't worry, true joy comes from abiding in him. So don't worry, you'll experience joy that's way better than the cheap happiness you, you've, been, you've been selling it out for. But it answers the question for us. If you, are, if you are afraid or willing to run from discipline, then you're basically saying, I would rather be less like Jesus and more like this world and comfortable than more like Jesus and allow God to complete what he wants to complete in me. And so I just leave you. Ask that question. Wrestle with it. Look to the scriptures. He is good to answer that. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we pray... Um, I want to thank you for discipline, despite the fact that I so often pray against it in my own life. Thank you for the many ways in which you have been refining me, and thank you for not being done with me, Lord. Um, I know that there's much more discipline in my life that's coming, and I, God, I just ask that you'd help me to not squirm out from underneath it, but still that we would just remain in it, remain, be steadfast under it, Lord, like your word tells us to. God, I pray for every individual in here that is experiencing hardship. God, whether they are a believer or not, that hardship is in place to make much of you. That hardship is in place to draw them to you. So if they don't believe in you, God, the difficulties they're experiencing is so that they can see you through it, Lord. And God, for those that are following you, the difficulties they're experiencing is so they can look more like you, Lord. And so I pray in both that we wouldn't take our eyes off of you. I pray that you would strengthen us, you would guide us. I pray that when we feel weary or faint-hearted, God, you would remind us that you are our stronghold. You are our strength. You are our foundation. You are a firm footing underneath us, Lord. It's your spirit that strengthens us, and I pray, God, that we would, as a community, press into that. Let the faith that we, the faith journey that we are on, God, let that be something that isn't just a word out of our mouth, but instead, God, let it be something that we really will take on discipline because we know ultimately that you discipline those whom you love. And I would much rather be your son than an illegitimate child afraid of discipline. 
It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Well, I wanted to give you guys a quick update. So you guys can grab a seat. We've been uh, raising money for the last few weeks for a facility downtown. And some of you are like, wait, I didn't know that. Yeah, we are. Anyways, it's been, it's been an interesting process. I spent kind of the front end, uh, just a quick before I show you the numbers, I spent a lot of time meeting with a lot of consultants that do work with this and then also other pastors that have raised money. And, and a lot of them, were, they were all very, very encouraging, incredibly encouraging. But a lot of them said like, hey, you got to go a little bit longer. You got to do this a little bit more grand scale to really get kind of the numbers that you're looking at, especially with the demographic that we see as a church. And so we as a leadership said, well, this is kind of the doors that the Lord has given us and the timing that the Lord has given us. And so we set forth to raise $380,000, 380 to four hundred thirty. That difference, just so you guys know, is the tenant improvement should be three to 350. We don't have those final numbers yet because the engineers are being very thorough. Um, but they haven't given us anything to worry about, anything structural yet. So thank you for praying for that, for those of you that are praying for that. But we should have those numbers there. And then the rest of that, about $80,000, we wanted to put in bank or have coming in in commitments to make sure that we could cover our lease payment for the first two and a half years, just to be really wise stewards of the money. And so when we started out, we said we had $30,000. So our goal, three hundred eighty dollars to four thirty. dollars We said we had $30,000 in savings. As a church, it wasn't until about two years ago when I actually had an owner's meeting right before summer where I met with all the owners and members of our church and said, hey, guys, if we have another summer like we did last year, we're probably going to have to close doors because we were that, kind of that broke. we just kind of been working by, working by. And it was through that time and over the last two years that we have been accruing savings. And so we have a little over $62,000 in savings, which 30000 because we earmark our savings for specific things, ministries and, and missions and all that stuff, 30000 of it was facilities. And so we had $30,000 before we ever started this process towards this $380,000 goal. And then I said, hey, I'm going to go and reach out. This hasn't really been done, but I'm going to do it anyways. I'm going to go reach out to all of the pastors that I've partnered with or have done work with or have been a blessing to us in the future and just say if they would be willing to help us stay downtown. And so I met with these 14 pastors, these 14 churches. These 14 churches gave us $35,450. So yeah, praise God, huge. So that puts us, thank you, Karen, go back to that. That puts us at 65,000, our goal. Look at it, it's just going away. I wish I had a little flannel graph and thermometer, but I don't, sorry. So that's where we were. And then we said, here's the Deeper Roots cards. And we asked every single one of you to prayerfully consider giving over and above your committed amount of giving to this Deeper Roots thing, whether it was a one-time gift or a, I'm going to give this amount of money extra over my normal giving each year for the next three years. And we asked you each to do that. And so on hand, as of Friday, we haven't checked today, but as of Friday, we have 186,000, or 048, 186, 48, I don't even know how to say that, $186,000. So we have, praise God, guys, we have $186,000 on hand right now. That's from the money that's come in. We have, yeah, this is huge. We have another 122,000 committed for three years. So our little church of small, young demographics has come up with over $300,000 in less than four weeks, which is unbelievable, okay? This is incredible. Now, this is enough for us, we feel as leadership, like we're moving forward. So we're moving forward with this. We feel like we have confidence. We are 71,000 to 121 short, depending upon what our tenant improvements are. That means that we need to come up with that $71,000 at minimum by the end of April. And the reason why I say by the end of April is that if the building comes back with no hiccups, which our architects and the city's already given us permission to meet there, like all that stuff's been just going so smooth. It's been amazing. If none of that, none of that happens, we get our tenant improvements and say he says they're 300,000, that would put us at the 380 number. And we get them back at 300,000, then that means that we have until the end of April really to pay that off. 
So we start tenant improvements in January. If we close, the, we close on the building at the end of this month, we would move our offices over next month to save the money that we're paying on offices so we can office there for free for the five months there. And then we would start tenant improvements in January. Well, if you guys have ever done remodels or tenant improvements, you pay for them as you go, right? So, hey, it just got framed. Well, now you owe the framer this much dollars. And so our hope and our belief, and we, we feel confident that we can actually gain the $71,000 that's needed to move forward, that we would have that on hand by the time April comes to pay through each thing. We really do feel like everything that the Lord has done through this process has just been confirmation after confirmation after confirmation. Honestly, like the, the numbers that we have on hand is, is profound, guys. It's amazing. So we're going to move forward, and, and then I want to show you this slide. Sorry, this is why we feel like we can cover this. So 51 households of our owners, we have about 84 households of owners, 51 households of our owners have engaged with this. That means they have either written down, yes, I want to give something, or they've given something with that, okay? And 43 households have, of non-owners have engaged with this. So that's 94 households that have given $308,000 of committed money, okay? That's awesome. You want to know what's crazy is we have almost 200 households here, okay? So that, that tells me that we still have room for us to really get to where we need to get to. So this is why we aren't that, that worried about it, because we know there are people that God is still working on, or the people that may be slow adopters, or some of you have been like wrestling with a number, or you feel like God's there. And then we also believe wholeheartedly because we've already had painting and chairs and some other things that are being um, committed to giving to us this process without even asking for it. We believe that the tenant improvements are going to be less expensive than what they are because of us being able to do some of the things, like demo ourselves. Our contract already told us that would save us like 12 grand. So there's a lot of things that, that we're going to be able to take in there. So we are super, super excited. We're moving forward, guys. And this, is, this means like three things to think about. First off, some timelines. Be aware of this. In November, we're going to ask you to come help us move the offices because that'll be fun. Okay? So, um, and we're going to move into a temporary setting in the facility down below. It also means that next week at 3.45 p.m., we're going to have people starting from here and people starting from the new building, but we're going to spend about an hour doing a prayer walk for downtown. And so we have gospel communities that will be at each space. If you come here, we'll talk about this next week, we'll have maps. If you come here, you can't park in the parking lots because we don't have those paid for. You gotta park on the street and then you're gonna walk over to the new facility and then we're all gonna pray together. Not because we're excited about this building, but because we're excited about God keeping us in this area to continue to reach people for his glory in this area. So that's what we're gonna do. We want you and anyone you know to come. We're inviting anyone and everyone. This is not just people that go to Rev. This is just a kingdom thing. We, wanna, we just think it'd be incredible to have a few hundred people roaming around downtown praying for God to do amazing work. So we're doing that. The second thing this means is there are some of you that haven't given yet. Please step in. Please faithfully, prayerfully jump into this. Please take part in this. If you, if you have not taken part in this yet and this is your church, I would challenge you to really prayerfully consider what the Lord is, is wanting you to do. Because if this is your church, I, I believe he wants you to do something. I really do. And that's not just lip service. Um, the other thing that this means timeline-wise is that most likely, if we do this, not counting a serve the city, we have our staff retreat, so we'll do a serve the city in the fall, but most likely we only have 17 more times to set up and tear down in here, and we could potentially be in this facility by April. So that is exciting, okay? That's awesome. Yeah, I know I'm with you. Yeah, woo -hoo, yeah. <laughs> the few people that have been setting up a lot, like, yes! <laughs> So we have 17 more set up and tear down Sundays between now and April. And our goal and our desire is to be in there by Easter, no later. Um, that's the hope. And that would work out perfect for us financially with leaving here, giving them enough time, and then also being there and not paying double rents at all because that would happen after May. Yeah, we're just super, super excited. If you have any questions, please don't, bother, don't hesitate to bother me or um, Daniel or Brian in this. Uh, we 
are really, really excited about this potential, and I really can't tell you how, um, I just want to say this, I guess, how proud I am of you guys. I really am. Like, those of you, like, it's, I, I jokingly said this with a few pastors afterwards. I said, in a lot of ways, when you start to raise money, it's almost like you're putting your kids out of the house to see if they have a real faith. And I know that there's a lot of ways to, to see faith outside of money, but the scriptures are clear. Money and, and, and God are, are always at war. And we see that, like, your heart is always at battle there. And I think as, as American Christians, that's always going to be a difficulty. And, and I just want to say, like, as, as, one, as one of the elders here, like, I'm, I'm honored. I'm honored and, and amazed at what 94 households could do for his kingdom purposes. Like, that is just, it's profound. It's amazing. And, like, I'm so proud of you guys. And the other thing that statistics say, now this is a, a sad statistic, but statistics say that usually go down about 20% when you're raising for something else in general giving. Our general giving hasn't changed at all. So thank you guys for your faithfulness. I mean, I know we've only been doing it for like four weeks, but I'm just trusting the Lord hand in this and seeing that. So thank you for your faithfulness. Thank you for your stewardship. I, I hope and I pray that as you've stepped out in faith in this way, I hope that God has shown you amazing things about your heart in this. And I hope that if you are wrestling to step out in faith, I hope you keep wrestling with that. I hope that God, that God really captures your heart in this in a beautiful way. And we will have, people keep asking this, we will have lots of ways for you to get your hands dirty. Lots of ways for you to get your hands dirty, I promise. They're not gonna, you're not going to miss out on swinging a sledgehammer. You will know a sledgehammer can come, okay? That's going to happen. But right now, we still need people to give financially because we want to move forward very confidently and faithfully and steward, steward this well without putting ourselves in a hard, hard spot. But we've, we, are, we are so excited. I'm just really, really excited. So thank you so much. 